Hi, and welcome back to Reflect Forward. I'm your host, Carrie Siggins, and I'm so glad you're here today. Today, my guest is Sam Jacobs. I met Sam through my good friend, Chris Shembra, who has also been on this show. Sam is the CEO and founder of Pavilion, which is a private membership group for high-growth professionals, providing support that they need to get where they want to go. And he started Pavilion after he got fired from his fifth job. He had worked as a sales executive for many companies in the startup environment, and he was tired of the quick turnover that inherently happens in these high-growth tech companies. Uh, which we talk about in the uh, podcast. So he decided he was going to start this company to be able to help teach people how to provide more value to an organization, how to accelerate revenue growth and add more value, and how to be able to build this network of people who help each other. He also wrote a book called Kind Folks Finish First, and it talks about the value of kindness. And when you have this mentality of helping people first, that it can help you drive your career, it sets you apart, it brings you joy, uh, it makes you a better person. And the book is about his journey of starting Pavilion and how having this kindness first mindset really set him apart and helped him build this amazing company. I can't wait for you to meet Sam. He is just amazing. You're going to love this interview. So hang tight and I'll be right back. All right, everyone. I am back with Sam Jacobs. Sam, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited to have you here. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me, Carrie. Awesome. All right. So before we jump into what got you to where you are today, can you, in your own words, describe what Pavilion is and maybe what sparked the idea? Sure. Of course. Yeah. So, uh, so I'm Sam. I'm the founder and CEO of a of a of a company called Pavilion. Pavilion is, we think, the largest um, community paid membership community for revenue executives, meaning sales, marketing, customer success operations and CEOs and founders. So revenue community for high growth uh, companies, meaning venture capital backed B2B tech startups, right? So we're the largest community for those kinds of folks in the world. And we, we build products and services to help them. We call it unlock uh, and achieve their professional potential, which just means that we give them training, we give them access to resources. We're really an organization designed to help people navigate their careers more effectively and to help their companies and themselves grow to their fullest potential. Now, I've been doing it for uh, about nine years, and um, the the origin of the of the company is the is really the backdrop of my career journey, which is that I uh, you know I've been fired four of my last five jobs. I've been doing uh, startup sales for twenty years now here in New York City, and um, you'll probably hear the the sirens in the background shortly, which will confirm that you know I'm not in a hidden bunker, but I am in the middle of the city. Um, and, and a couple of things happened, particularly from 2010 to 2018. One of those things is that, as I mentioned, my tenure kept shrinking as I became more senior. And I've been working in startups exclusively, so venture capital-backed high-growth technology companies. And the first place I worked seven and a half years, the next place I worked four and a half years, the next place 18 months, then nine months, then 10 months. So my tenure was shrinking. And of course, you know, of course I'm a difficult person to get along with, and I've got lots of personality quirks. But it turns out that that story is not specific to me, that the average tenure for a revenue executive at a high growth company is just 17 months. It's just a year and a half on average. And so 
That was happening while technology continued to change all of our jobs and all of our job descriptions. And where it wasn't, it just wasn't, there is no common description for a chief revenue officer or chief marketing officer. We think we know what they're supposed to do, but there's so many different technologies, tools, motions, playbooks, and there's no one place that you can learn it all. Certainly not, you know, at Wharton or, or Harvard or something like that. It's going to have to be on the ground, uh, on the front lines with people that are doing the job in real time. And so I created Pavilion as a mechanism for myself. First, to bring people together so that we could all share best practices. Second, so that we could commiserate when things were tough and times were difficult and to help us find the next opportunity. And, and it was because, again, I just think that you know, when, when I was growing up, the idea that uh, a career would be, the, uh, my parents worked um, basically one place their whole lives. They worked for the US State Department and they were foreign service officers and that's the one place they worked. And uh, the idea that you'd work 15 to 20 different companies over the course of 20 to 30 years is I think a pretty new phenomenon. And we need, we meaning the working professional public, we need resources that help us navigate that uncertainty with more confidence. If we're all gonna be freelancers, if we're all gonna be part effectively of the gig economy in some way, uh, then we're gonna need a place where we can find the next gig. We're gonna need a place that trains us and certifies us. And so in that way, we're almost like the modern day version of a guild or you know a trade association of some kind, but you know for profit, digital first, and focused on giving people the skills they need to succeed in the companies of today. So why is that such a short tenure? Why has it been shrinking? Why is it seventeen months for a, a, a revenue executive? I think there's a lot of different reasons. I think. Honestly, I think the biggest reason is just the pace of change in the world. If I had to like ascribe one specific thing, you can see we're all focused on instant gratification. We're all glued to our phones. We all lack a sense of patience or a long-term time horizon because I think the world moves more quickly than it used to. I think that's the headline. Now, there are a bunch of sub-bullets underneath that. One of them is that companies have raised a tremendous amount of capital over the last 10 years. Uh, and 15 years with the explosion of venture capital, and of course, different kinds of private equity. Capital is global in nature, right? More, now more than ever, sovereign wealth funds and people from all over the world are investing in high growth companies. And the consequence of that is that the growth expectations for a lot of these companies are very, very high. And that means that there's less patience on the part of the CEOs and founders and the investors. But it also means it's not just about, they're not, there's no bad guy or bad gal or good guy or good gal. It is also true, I can tell you as a CEO, that when you're growing at a rapid rate, the company itself is different. It's a different company. The company you know, we were doing, we're about a close to $20 million business, really 16, so I'm rounding up very aggressively. But, uh, but you know, two years ago, uh, when Elephant Ventures invested in us in April of 2021, we were a $4 million company, right? So in two years, we've grown about 4X. The challenges that we face today, they're not really related to the challenges that we faced two years ago. And the job itself is different. It's a different job. And so as you grow through these stages, you know, again, if you're growing 10% a year, then the job might be the same uh, over four or five years. Or you can, you at least have the luxury of time to grow into those skills that are required. But when you're doubling or tripling, or at least are expected to, even if you're not realizing those goals, it's just a different job. And so I think that sometimes that can be, that just means that there's a lot of people that 
quickly move through their comfort zone to, you know, the Peter principle to the place of their, of their least competence. And it just requires somebody sometimes with more experience at that stage that has seen the movie before, as they say, and that has skills that are necessary for where the company is in its growth trajectory. So I think it's the rate of change fundamentally. I think there's less patience and more capital being deployed that expects and is seeking a higher return. And I also just think that companies themselves are changing so quickly that it's hard for people to be the relevant person at every single stage of that company's growth. And how do companies and sales executives like make this switch, right? Because to even like start to understand a company and how you're really going to drive things, it's, you know, it's six months at a minimum. So basically if you're not performing in, you know, you get six month grace period. So if you're not performing in a year, you're out. How do you overcome that's expensive? And it's obviously probably unrealistic uh, to be able to, to demand this out of mere mortals. Um, so what are companies trying to do to balance this? Or do you think it's just the way that it's going to be for a while? If you're not meeting those growth targets, then, you know, it's, it's on to somebody else. I think it's, well, so first of all, Pavilion arose when I was not a CEO. It arose when I was a sales executive and it was much more at the beginning, us versus them. Yeah. And so one of the things that we teach is how to negotiate, right? So it may be true that a year and a half, I mean, candidly, Carrie, like I get bored myself, <laughs> you know, pretty quickly when I'm working for somebody else. So it may be true that a year and a half is the right amount of time. If that's the case, that might be okay, but we need a different deal. They need a different mm -hmm. deal then. Mm -hmm. And the deal needs to reflect that reality. So for example, when we started Pavilion, we, we introduced this concept of the Bill of Rights. They're not really rights in the same way that it's like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's a negotiating framework but there's five pieces to it. The first is due diligence, which just means you have a right to like know what the company is doing and how well they're doing before you start working for them. But the next ones are more important, the right to align compensation. So one of the reasons sales leaders get fired is because they're so focused on cash comp that they come in and they have to be the highest paid person in the room, even when that doesn't make sense for the business. And it ends up, they make short-term decisions that aren't in the long-term interest of the company and they put the company over its skis. And that certainly happened to me. The third is the right to liquidity. Again, not really a right, but the point is, how do you negotiate for equity? How do you structure your deal so that you increase the likelihood that, um, that you can make money from the ownership percentage in the company? And then the fourth is the one that's probably most relevant, which is the right to severance. So what we teach people is, hey, it's okay to pre-negotiate. If, again, if, if it's likely that you're only gonna be there a year and a half, then you need a couple things. First, you might need pre-negotiated severance so that it's a little bit more expensive. It's a little bit tougher for yeah. the company to say goodbye to you. And the second thing you might need is the right to consult. So in most employment agreements, there's this concept of you know assignment of uh, invention, right? Like whatever you invent while you work for me is my property, not yours. And uh, we, we advocate that there should be a right to monetize your non-competitive expertise, which just means that if you're a sales leader and you've been teaching sales and doing sales for 20 years, uh, I think you should be able to do consulting and to build side revenue streams so that you're not so dependent that gives the company the freedom to do what they need to do, but it also gives you the freedom to build, uh, you know, to build some security and some stability into your life and really monetize the expertise that you develop. So one part I think of the answer is, hey, we need a different deal. And I also just think candidly, I really do think like work is changing. I really do yeah. see it. I see that I think it's gonna be a lot more, I think Uber and Lyft 
and DoorDash are not going to be the model just for for low-end service workers. I think, um, you know, I talked to all kinds of companies. I had breakfast this morning with my friend Matt Blumberg, who's the CEO of a company called Bolster, and they are a marketplace for fractional executive support. So instead of hiring somebody full-time, you hire an interim VP of finance. And what we were talking about literally is an entirely new type of employment model where you basically, uh, you, you never hire the executive. You go through almost like an RPO or a placement agency or a, temp, a staffing agency like this company, Bolster. And then everybody that, that is an executive with Bolster puts their equity into a pot so that, they are, so that you as the employer, as the company, as the startup, you can swap people out whenever you want. It doesn't really affect the people that are being swapped out because they're part of a separate profit pool that is part of their, their guild, their union, whatever you want to call it. And the company can make the changes that it needs to make as it goes. So I think that's... Um, a little bit technical in terms of the details, but the point is that I really do think that the way that people work with companies is is continuously changing, especially now. And so it's super interesting. I just read an article too that talked about um, you know the difference in the United States and that wealthy people typically work more than people you know middle class or in poverty, and that's reversed in most countries. Uh, you know, like in Cambodia, people who are poor work a lot more of it, more hours than 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 wealthy people. Um, but in the United States, wealthy people have always, always for the last 50 years have worked more hours. And that's going backwards. So in 2022, um, the average wealthy male worked 77 hours less than they did in 2021. And I find that to be really fascinating because I do think that there's, you know, there's so much shift that's going on with work and people coming out of COVID saying, you know, companies aren't loyal to me. Um, I don't want to work this hard. How can I do something that's different that allows me to live the lifestyle that I want that isn't just so work work focused, making money focused, um, that I, I can, you know, have more purpose and meaning in my life. So I wonder how like that ties into all of this too, is being able to say, okay, I'm going to be in a, fra- a fractional executive, you know, and, and be able to maybe have more flexibility in creating the life that I want. Do you think that there's some interest of that, um, at 100%, play here? hundred percent. Mm-hmm. I, I can tell you that the big moment in my life, um, was 2017. I wrote a book uh, called Kind Folks Finish First, and it's about the starting of uh, Pavilion. It is here. I'll just flash it on the camera really quickly because I've got it right there. Um, But the point is it starts uh, on Friday the 13th, 2017, and it was when I was fired from my second to last job. And what I did immediately upon getting fired was start a consulting business. And I can tell you that the freedom that I enjoyed being a consultant was so liberating. And the idea that I was making money that could directly go into my bank account and it wasn't 1% or 4% or 10%. It wasn't a commission. It was my ability to, if I signed a client for 10 grand, it went, 10 grand went into my bank account. And that hadn't happened to me in a really long time. I hadn't run my own business since I was, you know, 22, 23 years old. So, so the answer to your question is yes. It's if you can make it work, if you have the expertise. And that's why I don't, I don't know that it's appropriate for people earlier in their career, but later in your career, as you, as you develop a point of view and you develop expertise, yeah, I think that it's a different it's a different life, it's a better life. Now, what's what are the drawbacks? One of the drawbacks is 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 which is why I was referencing that profit pool uh, for that other company because the the problem with consulting or being a fractional executive is it's really hard to get rich. Yep. Uh, you know, or, or or to generate wealth. I you know, everybody has a different 
frame on that, but to generate long-term sustainable capital that can earn a return where you don't have to work on income and you can make 8% or 10% in the stock market and that can be your money, um, it's really hard to do as a consultant because you don't have equity value. There's nothing that's building while you sleep. You know, when you, when you work at a company, the machine is being built. And even though it might take a long time, at some point, the machine runs even when you're not paying attention to it. Really hard to do as a fractional uh, executive. And that's why there needs to be new structures around ownership so that you can accumulate some wealth. Last thing I'll say, though, sort of relatedly uh, to the point about working less, I just think there's a bigger question, which is what is work? What is work? You know, because for me, I mean, I have the best job in the world and you run your own company too, Carrie. So I'm sure you know this, but like, what is work to me? You know, I'm at home in my, you can see me, right? I'm in my living room. You know, is this work? I'm talking on a podcast about stuff that I'm really interested in. I guess it's work. Is it work when I'm thinking about the business problems that my company is struggling with? I guess that's work. Is it work when I check my phone, you know, for 10 minutes before I read my book at night? I guess that's work, you know? So I just think, so many things about the way life was structured were, was, were, were created, that the models were created before, before the internet, yeah. uh, before the mobile internet, right? Like you, it was all desktop computing. And, when, and also when work meant something different, you know, because I think that work used to be a lot harder and more yeah. rigorous and grueling, you know? And, um, and that's not what it's like anymore. And so like even the concept of retirement, I mean, you can even look at our, our uh, octogenarian president to know that like some people can't even get the message on when they should retire. But the point is like, um, can you, I mean, I'm not going to retire. What is retire? You know, am I going to stop doing interesting, creative things that hopefully have some value to the world? No, I'm never going to do that. I might not be working on this company, but I'll always be doing something that I hope is useful to somebody else. And so just even the concept of retirement, I think, is, is one that may need some revisitation. Yep, for sure. Um, I was just having a conversation. People always ask me what, like, why do you do all these things that you do? You know, I write, I speak, I have my you know, three podcasts. And, and I was talking to my VP of HR and I told her, I said, you know, it's, it's been such an interesting process to go and start to build out this platform um, of, you know, really what I believe around, around ownership thinking and the ownership mindset and, and, and how I view leadership. And, and I started it in COVID. I was like, you know, I have this need for something that's really creative. Um, and I, you know, get, I want to be able to have a secondary revenue source of revenue. So, you know, I speak a lot. And, but I told her, I said, through all of this and the years I've been doing it, I am truly an expert in leadership. Like not like, you know, because I read, I wrote a book and I call myself that, but being a CEO for 16 years and then over the last five years, like fully immersing myself every single week, talking to exceptional leaders, doing my own podcasts on my leadership, writing my book, writing for Forbes, writing for um, entrepreneur, which are all things that feed my soul and will obviously help me in whatever I decide to do next, what retirement is, um, which will never happen. But it has so benefited my company. Hands down. I am a significantly better leader than I was five years ago because of all of the knowledge I have literally immersed myself in from doing this. And it is work. 
And it is, but it's not something that feels like work, you know, like what you said, the grueling, like, ugh, you know, I have to get out of bed and do this kind of thing. And it's so benefited the company. And so at Stone Age, I encourage my employees to, you know, to be able to, pr- to pursue those passions because just because you're doing something outside does not mean that it's not going to benefit Stone Age inside. And so how do we create this environment where people can live their dreams but not have to not work for us because they they can't have the side gig or they don't feel like, you know, it's safe to say, hey, I'm interested in doing something like this. Can I get a little bit of help? And um, and so I think it's a really, you know, I, I've had the, my whole world opened up because of this process that I've gone through kind of, you know, not really intentionally thinking about the outcome that was that has actually happened and they and the way that I have really been like empowered in my own leadership thinking. And so, you know, it's a long way of asking, like, do you think companies are going to support this? Right. Because like my eyes were open and I want to make sure that people in my company feel like they can do these things because I do think it's going to benefit us. Do you think that most companies see it that way? That if somebody said, I want to have a side, I want to have consulting on the side, that that's a pot seen as a positive thing. Well, I think, I think over time, yes. I mean, I yeah. think we're in this, we're in this moment to the point where you, you, companies can't have it both ways. If, if it's exactly what you said, if, if we want to fire people, whenever we want to fire people and we don't want to make long-term promises to people and we need to be flexible. And if it's a downturn, we get small. And if it's an upturn, we get big, then people themselves need to have options and they need to have resources and they need to take agency over their lives. And also, I agree with you. I mean, I think it's sort of different because there's also like this, there's this, you know, there's this like this whole trend where people actually have like multiple full-time jobs and that I do have a problem with. Yes, But in terms of side hustles and people sharpening their saw and developing skills and insights through consulting and through public speaking and through immersion and other kinds of networks and communities, yeah, I mean, I, I firmly, firmly believe in that. I think the main thing is, not the main thing, but something that what, what all of this does in a remote world, if we're completely remote, is it just increases to, your, to the point of what you're focused on and what you're an expert in, it increases the requirements for leadership, right? Because it's like, you got to be really clear about what your KPIs are and what you're expecting from your people. You, you, you can't, I don't know if the people, like, I think that people who work for me work hard. I mean, I assume they do. But I think it's really incumbent upon me to say this is what's expected. And if you deliver what's expected, then you're doing a good job. And if I can't define what's expected, then that's on me. And I think that the office filled in a lot of gaps for people uh, in previous years that that are not filled in right now. And frankly, because I talked to tons of CEOs, um, as you do, I think a lot of people are talking about going back to the office. I yeah. think uh, there was this whole moment during COVID when we're never going back. We love working from home. I think some people do, but I think that you don't know what you don't know. And it's really hard to build culture and really hard to drive productivity if, if you're completely remote the whole time. Yep, I agree. I think hybrid's the way to go and offering some flexibility. I, I know that I like it myself, right? I work from home two days a week because I can be so productive. Uh, but then I'm in the office three and sometimes it's written verse and sometimes in the office all five days, depending on what's going on. But that is really a powerful thing when you feel like you have the flexibility to do both, but you can't not be in the office. What you miss there in terms of culture building and relationship building and networking, right? Which is now something that you're, you're super passionate about and believe in deeply. You can't do that, um, 
they can't do that remotely, at least not at the same um, depth. And so I think that, you know, for us, the future is hybrid. It's trying, I mean, we're an employee-owned company and I want my employees to, to act and think like owners. And we set very clear expectations around, you know, what is expected at work and, and we're high performing. And if you can't keep up, it's going to be obvious, but we don't do that. Um, but we also say the relationships you build are just as important as the work that you get done. And so how do we be able to combine both of those? So you can have super productive days at home and you can come into the office and you can build those relationships and those networks that you need to be able to be successful and be a great teammate. So, you know, we're playing around with what that that hybrid schedule looks like so that we can create that flexibility, but not give up the, the really important thing of being face-to-face. Well, and I uh, I commend you and, and I'm in a different position because when my company first started growing, we were looking at office space. And of course that was February, 2020. And so then that didn't happen. And we started hiring people from all over the country and then it became impractical to have an office. And now, now I'm now, uh, you know, I'm not making any like rash decisions, but I had a call with our head of people today where I said, well, on the margin, like, let's look for people that are within a hundred miles of New York city (laughs) or 200 miles. Like, Let's have some opportunity where we can get together regularly as a team, because I agree with you. It's something it's missing. It's missing. Yeah. And it's it's hard. It's hard to get people because all of it is about how do you get people like how do you get the best work from people? As I'm sure, you know, well, you got to give them something to believe in. You got to give them a vision and you got to give them something bigger than themselves, something where they feel part of a team that's accomplishing a goal. And it's just harder to do on Zoom. You know, it's just, it's not the same thing, a bunch of squares on your on your laptop as a bunch of people in a room high-fiving and cheering. Yep, totally agree, totally agree. All right, well, let's talk a little bit about networking since we just dabbled in that. And I know that's a big part of your book. Um, so tell me like your, you know, what is your philosophy on networking and not just like building it, but like actually doing something with it? I have, um, Pretty straightforward, I, and and uh, you know may or may not be surprising, but I'm you know I'm pretty an, I'm a pretty introverted person for somebody that runs a networking organization, and so how do I think about it? I think about it that you know there's a couple key principles that are articulated in in the book. One of them is build relationships, not transactions. The second is play a big long game versus a short small game, which just means. Uh, and then the final piece is you know look to give before you get, look to offer assistance before you receive assistance. Collectively, what that means is that I view networking as an opportunity to help other people. And, and I don't, and I'm not just saying that because I think I'm like a good person, you know, or I'm trying to be Mother Teresa. It's because um, it, it, the, the reason the book is called Kind Folks Finish First, obviously a play on Nice Guys Finish Last, is, um, you know, the, the, the publishers came to me when I pitched them the book. They said, I love the book, but shouldn't we call it like the kindness principle or kind why do you have to call it kind folks finish first? It's not really about finishing first. It's about, it's just about the good feeling that you have by helping other people. I said, no, that's not correct. That is incorrect. This is a strategy for business success. And the strategy for business success is that it's okay to want what you want. It's okay to be ambitious. It's okay to want to achieve things. But this is just a different formula, a different playbook. It's not to say that the other playbook doesn't work. It's just to say that this is a, this is a different playbook. And in this playbook, you look to help other people. And so my point is, for me, networking is, is looking for opportunities to help people. And it's specifically looking to connect them to resources, to offer them insights or perspectives they might need, to help them find a job. 
all of my business pavilion emerged from doing that, from doing that because I was doing it in my spare time and I really enjoyed it. And I thought a lot about what is it that I enjoy? I enjoy the, the feeling of uh, almost like a puzzle piece connecting or like a Lego snapping into place. When you make a connection between two people that you think should hit it off and might be able to help each other. And then you find out that they did help each other and they did hit it off. And that feeling that you get of, you know, that, that person you introduced me to six weeks ago, they hired me, you know, I got a new job. Thanks. And so for me, networking is really about, you put as many deposits as you can into the bank of karma. And then you just don't have any specific withdrawal date. You say, I will get paid back. I'm not going to worry about exactly when and how, but I know I will get paid back. And my experience is that it works. My experience is that, and, and that the, to the point of like the title of the book, you know, I, I, this is not, a, this is a terrible metaphor. I shouldn't use it, but nevertheless, you know, the beginning of the Godfather, uh, Don Corleone, he can't refuse a, a favor on his daughter's wedding day. And so everybody's in a line asking for him and for stuff. And he's, and what's the point? How did he become the Don besides, you know, besides murdering a few people? Well, he became the Don by helping people. That's, that's fundamentally what the, the mafia was, you know, it was a group of people, immigrants that were helping the people that had also immigrated from Italy and they provided protection and they provided resources and they provided housing and they provided policing. And so the point is, the more you help people, the more you are someone that can help people. And someone that can help people is a powerful person. And so even though I also believe it's the right thing to do and I believe in, you know, the basics of the Judeo-Christian framework and, uh, you know, of just give before you get and do the, and the golden rule. Um, it also is a strategy for professional success, but it's predicated on let me, let me help as many people as I can and let me not ask for anything in return. And in so doing, I will accumulate credits in the bank of karma, but also I will separate and differentiate myself because everybody else is transactional and short-term focused. Everybody else wants 10% of this introduction and 5% of that. And when you don't ask for those things, you look different. You look, you position yourself as apart and, uh, and unique. So long, long, long answer to your question, but you know, that's my, my approach to networking is how can I help? That's how I yep. think about it. I love that. That is how I live my life. Um, I, I believe we should all help and be kind. And in addition to all of those things that you said, because I do think that it gives you, makes you the go-to person. It makes you influential. Um, it helps you position yourself differently and set yourself apart. But it also brings you joy. Like I genuinely feel good when I help somebody and that just makes the world a better place. So, you know, how do you weave joy into, into the book and into this whole process um, that you've come up with? The book is like, you know, the story of uh, somebody that wasn't succeeding that found a way to yeah. succeed. And for most of my life, joy was not a part of it. You know, I was frustrated and I was unhappy. And so I there's a couple key things that I did. The first thing was I hired a coach and the coach said, what do you stand for? And I said, well, that's the most ridiculous question I've ever heard. I stand for making money. Like, what, is, what does that mean? He said, well, it's not anything you can stand for. Money comes after you do the good thing, not before. Yeah. And so we went on this exercise together where I truly figured out where do I get joy? Where do I drive energy? And where do I, what do I stand for? And it was this three week process. And at the end of it, I came out with this mission statement and the mission statement is, I stand for helping people I care about and respect achieve their professional goals. And that's not word for word, the mission statement of Pavilion, but it's pretty damn close. Yeah. And so for me, it was, first of all, you know, the, the shortest answer to your question is reflection. 
if I can reflect on where I find you, and a lot of people don't, a lot of people don't, they don't stop and think this activity that I just did made me happy. Why did it make me happy? I think the act of reflection is really powerful to help you find where you derive joy. And, um, and then the other thing I would say is, you know, there's another part of the book where, you know, it's talking about kindness, but the, the real kindness principle that I articulate is not to other people, but it's to yourself. And, and there's this, one of the most important epiphanies I've had in my life is that I have not been kind enough to myself and I needed to be more supportive and nurturing. My, one of the things I like to say is if the voice inside your head was an outside person, would you be friends with that person? Because for a long time, I wouldn't have been friends with that person. I would have thought they were a jerk. So part of me finding joy is building in practices that help me develop self-compassion. And that brings me peace and it helps set my mind at ease. And I've got all kinds of different rituals that I do. I have this thing called a good day spreadsheet. It's like five different activities where if I do those things, I may not feel super happy right now, but I know that I'm working towards that basic goal. And so long story long is that, you know, self-compassion is one of the key principles for me that helped me find joy in life. I love that. I literally just had this conversation. Um, a gentleman had reached out to me about a speaking engagement and I started asking him like, okay, well, let's like, help me understand your framework for your team and what you're looking for. And he came out and he said, I I'm simply motivated by money. And I said, <laughs> I said, okay, well, I can, I can appreciate that's where you're coming from, but none of us are really truly motivated by money. Money is a tool for something that we want. And so tell me what you need money for. Like, why is it this focus? And so he told me, you know, his personal story of divorce and a partner, uh, uh, business partnership falling apart and his aging parents and, and how he wanted them to die, be able to live with dignity. And I was like, well, there is your greater purpose right there. Like you have, you know, something very visceral that happened to you and you have this, you know, this genuine desire to be able to take care of your parents. So like you have, like, think about those things because what you say and what you think is what you manifest. And so when you say I'm only about money, when you just told me three very real things that like touched my heart um, and I felt for you, it's so much more compelling, not only for you and how you live your life, but how that's going to translate to your team about why they're helping you build a company. And he was like, oh my God, I've never thought about it like that. And I think that's such, you know, what you just went through, what you went through those years ago with your coach and, and having that epiphany of there is something that's so much more here. And it doesn't mean that I don't want to make money, right? That I, that I don't want to be successful and ambitious, like you said earlier. But boy, when I really understand those intrinsic motivations and why, it makes it so much more purposeful um, yeah, than, 100%. you know, and and it helps you not go down that slippery slope of maybe making bad decisions, maybe unethical decisions, all of those. If you stay rooted in, why am I really doing this? I agree with you completely. And I also think relatedly, it helps you have a longer term perspective. And I, yeah. again, I think that that's why I say play a big long game versus a short small game, because so many people are transactional. So many people are and they sometimes they're doing it because they think they're worried that they're going to get screwed. Sometimes they're doing it because they've never ta been taught any different or any better. But I, I really think that if you can figure out what brings you joy, then money can become incidental. And it was only, you know, exactly to your point about, you know, what you manifest is what is what appears there. My coach talks about how, you know, thinking negative things and being negative 
I forget the exact quote, but it's basically like, you know, never has more been lost by people thinking one thing and expecting yeah. another. Exactly. People have obsessing about negativity and thinking that is the path to positivity. And it's not. The path to positivity is positivity. And so, you know, you have to, at any rate, you know, I could talk about this for, for hours, but I, I completely agree that it's about, it's about finding the joy in the everyday. And when you, when you let go of the need to have certain things, that tends to be when they appear. Yeah. Well, I, it's so funny. I, um, I've been going through kind of this transformational process. Um, I decided I wanted to quit drinking. This is, you know, COVID, all of that. And then I you know, did better and then traveled a lot. And I was like, gosh, you know, I'm having a glass of wine every single day. Like come home, have a glass of wine while I'm making dinner. And like, I don't like how I feel. I don't like how I look. And I've been thinking about this for a year. And I finally said, you know what? I'm going to be that person who does the New Year's resolution. And I am just going to, I'm going to do dry January and um, I'm going to do a fast and I am just going to get this under control. And so I started out with dry January and the first week kind of sucked. And then, you know, now I'm going to, now I'm like going to do dry February because it was, I feel so awesome. And then two and a half weeks later, I did a fat, a five day fast. And I literally like, I feel amazing. I'm sleeping amazing. I lost like eight pounds. And I was meditating and I was visualizing, you know, the continued success that I had. It just popped in my mind. You cannot manifest unless you decide and you act. So all that year I've been thinking about wanting to quit drinking, wanting to lose weight, you know, and just hoping that these like maybe these little tweaks would change it, but I would just fall back into my normal patterns. And it's like, duh, of course I know that. But I think that's a really important piece of this, right? It's like you have to come from a place of positivity, abundance, right? What do I want? Not what do I not want? And then you have to decide and act. Because as soon as I did it, because I approached it with positivity and resolve, like everything just shifted and changed. And then I manifested what I wanted. And so I think that's a big part of it too, is like a lot of people will just put the things out there that they want, but then they really don't want to to take the action and do the work to make it happen. And you cannot manifest without action. I agree with that a hundred percent. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for letting me rant. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. <laughs> it was so funny when I like had this and I was like, Oh my God, you're such an idiot. Like, of course. Yeah. I don't think you're an idiot. I, it's hard to stop drinking. Yeah. I was, uh, yeah. I was trying to do dry January too, but, uh, I had a CEO summit like the next week. So then it became a moist January. Moist and I was January, yeah. <laughs> That's my husband Mostly said. Dry. My husband yeah. was like, I'm, I'm not going to do dry, but I'll have a moist January with yeah, you. Yeah, <laughs> I'll just drink less. Uh, all right. So I do want to ask you a couple more questions before we wrap things up. You talked about, you know, the play on your book, right? Um, kind folks finish first instead of nice guys finish last. What is the difference between nice and kind? Because I, I know you've got some thoughts on that. I can only speak for myself. Uh, you know, Kim Scott wrote this book, uh, Radical Candor, and she talks about like ruinous empathy. And I think nice is superficial and kindness is, is, uh, is more, has more depth to it. Kindness is not about what kind of mood you're in. And the funny story, by the way, is that the book was originally called Nice Folks Finish First. And then I went for a run one day with my good friend and he said, so what's the book called? I said, Nice Folks Finish First. And he said, huh. And I said, what? Cause it was a very pregnant pause and he said you know i think a lot of things about you sam <laughs> you're a great guy nice is not that's not the first word that comes to mind and um 
And he's right. And he's right. And I'm not, you know, I'm a pretty moody person. I'm a pretty grumpy person. My Zodiac sign is cancer. And everybody says I'm like, you know, out of central casting for that Zodiac sign, if you believe in that stuff. But I, I'm not, I'm grumpy. I'm moody. If we made a bunch of sales that day or had a bunch of signups, I'll be over the moon. Like my mood basically just tracks to our business performance. But, um, but that's not what kindness is about. Kindness is about the right, doing the right thing. It's about having a moral code. And it's also not about, again, it's not about ruinous empathy. The kindest thing might be to give somebody really tough feedback that they absolutely need to hear. The kindest thing might be parting ways with somebody where it's just not a good fit for their skill set, and you need to let them go free so that they can find what they're meant to do, as people have done that for me. And a big part of the book is, if you think it's me, you know, bitching, pardon my French, about all of the people that fired me, it's not. I'm grateful to those people. So for me, kindness is about how you behave and how you, how you actually act, not, not the mood that you're in, not whether you're smiling every second of the day, not whether you're the most cheerful person. And by the way, being cheerful is awesome. And you know, God bless the people that are like massive extroverts that can handle that all the time. But for me, kindness is just about something more profound. It's about a way of engaging with other human beings and animals, frankly, and the world and the earth in a way that demonstrates respect, empathy, and compassion. So, but you know, I'm sure if you looked it up in the dictionary, they'd be like, that's not really the difference. So those are, those are my differences. Well, I love your differences and I could not agree with you more. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, thank you. Uh, all right. I have two more questions for you before we wrap things up. And it, this is going to tie so well into your reflection comment. So the name of my podcast is Reflect Forward. Um, reflection is something very important to me as well. Uh, I would not be alive if I would not have done some serious self-reflection. Um, what does Reflect Forward mean to you? It's interesting that you say that because I have a I have an answer for this. <laughs> um, so there's this concept called future casting, and, and it, was, it, was, it was what I was going to say when you talked about manifestation and decisive action, which is that um, one of the ways, because uh, you know, a hope, hope is not a strategy, right? Like, I want to lose weight. doesn't really work. It's, I need to have a plan. And one of the ways that I found to have a plan is to part of like, you know, to your point, right? Um, uh, uh, gratitude is the frequency most harmonious with abundance in the universe, right? Like, um, so how do you feel abundant? How do you become, how do you act like the person that already has instead of the person that wants? Well, you, you put yourself in the shoes of that person. And for so long, you know, in my life, I had, I hope I will, I hope that I will, which, which implies it definitively creates uncertainty. That's kind of yeah. the point of it, right? Like I do not have these things. I don't even have a plan to get them, but I hope that I will. Whereas what I do now is called, you know, future casting, which just basically means you put yourself in your own shoes in the future, you reflect forward and you look back on the year that was or the six months that were, and you describe where you are with great detail so that it's not foreign. It's not exotic. It's right here, you know? And so every year between Christmas and New Year's, and then I'm trying to do it every six months actually, but is I, I write a reflection and I'm like, okay, it's January, it's January 4th, 2024. You know, I'm sitting here at the same dining room table and it all worked out and it was yeah. great. Here's what happened. You know, the company hit this goal. My relationship with my wife is here. This is how I'm feeling about, you know, our family. This is how I'm feeling about the dogs or whatever it may be. And, uh, and here's how it happened. You know, well, we did this and we did that and we did this. And, um, 
I really believe very strongly in this technique and especially not just the concrete actions. I ran a, you know, an eight minute mile uh, marathon, you know, 329 or 45 seconds, whatever the actual time is. Like I, um, it's, it's about the scene. We call them scaffolding images. Like what's the scene, you know? And, and so I try, it's like, so the funny story I have um, in the time that we have left, I did this in December of 2020. And my company had gone through a really, we'd grown four or five X during, uh, during COVID. And so I thought maybe, I'd never thought about raising money, but I thought maybe I'll try and raise some money. So I said, okay, it's a year from now. We raised $30 million. We're profitable. So I, some of that 30 million went into my pocket and I'm, it's the week between Christmas and New Year's and I'm on this, I'm on a yacht and it's in the Caribbean and I'm wearing Villa Brooklyn's swim trunks. And you know, this is, I'm wearing a linen shirt and this is the music that I'm listening to. And you know, my wife's in the other room and, uh, and I had said it a year in the future, but it, like there were details about the transaction. There were details about the boat. And uh, two, two months after that happened, I got an email from uh, the venture capital firm that ended up investing in us. They, a week after that, they sent me a term sheet for $25 million, not 30, but pretty damn close. The terms of the deal were pretty close to what I had written down in my journal. And that, that uh, we celebrated uh, the summer of 2021 on a yacht in the middle of the Amalfi Coast. And it was, it was weird. And I have it written down in my journal. You know, I have it like, I'm like, do you, this is where I wrote 25 million. This is, so anyway, my point that's is, that's what Reflect story. Forward means to me. <laughs> I love it. What a great story. I just, I, I am so with you. I do something very similar. And the one thing that I add to that is I talk about the obstacles I'm going to have to overcome because oh, I think awesome. that's a thing that people miss in manifesting, right? You think about what you want and all the good things, but then when all of a sudden, you know, something blows up and you have to overcome it. So I imagine like, okay, you know, this is going to be hard. I'm going to have to go through a tough negotiation to be able to get this deal done. And it's going to be emotional. And, you know, my ego might want to step in the way, but, you know, I get, I get through this. And so I found that that helps with resilience in those moments um, when you are trying to manifest the certain outcome um, to also imagine and reflect on what you're going to have to overcome because there's no doubt that there's going to be roadblocks along the way. I think that's a great, I'm going to add that because that's a great addition and you're right. And you can't get so disheartened when there is a roadblock that you give up. Exactly. That's it. If you just only imagine all these amazing things happening and then when all of a sudden a roadblock is there, do you, exactly. I think you, you're you like, just, yeah, that vision's out the window. Excuse. Yep, exactly. <laughs> oh, that wasn't so easy. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I love that. All right. One final question. Um, what advice do you have for leaders who are looking to be the very best at what they do? I mean, Tactical advice, stop drinking just like you did. Get some good sleep. Yes. <laughs> you know, you, good sleep is so important. I think, I think leadership, I mean, you're the expert, but here's what I would say. I would say that people want something to believe in, as I mentioned earlier. You know, Dan Pink talks about autonomy, mastery, and purpose, and I think purpose is really important. I think that people want to believe that what they're doing connects to something bigger than themselves while they also want the space to develop their own competency and expertise in their skill. And so my, my advice to leaders, my advice to myself is over communicate the vision, over communicate the end state, over communicate why we're here. Why, how does this connect? You are doing something boring and tedious today. Here's why it connects to the big picture. Here's how it fits into the overall jigsaw puzzle 
the mosaic that is our journey together towards this beautiful destination. Not rocket science, but just always bears repeating that, that people need something to look ahead to. Yeah. You are speaking my love language. I mean, literally. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I talk about purpose and vision so much. I'm sure my, my executive management team is like, just stop. And I'm like, but everybody has to, you know, you ha people have to care. It is not just they about do. getting paid. They have to care, like, deeply in their hearts about what we're trying to do here. You know, we are trying to build a billion-dollar company. Um, with no outside capital is really, really, really hard to do. <laughs> so yes, it is you very know, hard to do. Uh huh. I know, almost impossible. Tell people tell me it's impossible, and I'm like, well, I'm going to try. Uh, but I don't think Sarah um, Blakely took a bunch of outside capital. I, I don't. Yeah. It's not impossible. It's not impossible. It's just hard. Um, but uh, but you have to have people who want to care care more, right? That's a we're going to have a lot of hard work ahead of us, and it can't just be about a billion dollar valuation. Although for my employees it pays because they're employee owners. And so, <laughs> you know, they get to share in the success of this March. But, you know, that's always secondary anyway, right? It's do I like my job? Do I like my coworkers? Do I have an opportunity to do something meaningful at work every day? Do I have autonomy? Um, all of those things are what makes being the human experience, the human experience, right? Not having a bunch of money. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. Sam, this has been so amazing. I literally could talk to you all day. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. I've loved being here. Awesome. Thank you. All right. Hang tight, everybody. I'll be right back. All right, everyone. I am back. I hope you enjoyed that incredible interview. Be sure to check out Pavilion. They're doing really cool things. And with that, I will leave you to your day. I hope you have a fantastic rest of your day. And uh, if you like this podcast, please like it, write a review, go to iTunes, Spotify, subscribe to it, um, share it with a friend. It always helps with the algorithms and it helps spread these amazing stories like Sam. I mean, who can't learn from that interview right there? All right, see you next week. Thanks.